You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from my friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Words, an ex-evangelical podcast where we give toxic theology the read that it deserves by taking another look at some of the books that have been given major influence in evangelical Christianity. I am Janice Legata, and this is a meeting of the Bad Book Club. We are reading The Bait of Satan by John Bevere, biting into it one chapter at a time. I'll read the opening paragraph and give a few thoughts, and then join one of the members of the Bad Book Club for a discussion. In the end, I'll read the closing paragraph and give some closing thoughts, all with the intention of leaving you free to think your own thoughts about the chapter, the book, and all things really. So, without further ado, let's get into... Chapter 8. All that can be shaken will be shaken. He has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Hebrews 12, 26-27 In the previous chapter, we saw that the revealed Word of God is the foundation on which Jesus builds his church. We watched Simon Peter remain even when other disciples left offended. Even when Jesus gave him an opportunity to leave, Simon Peter spoke what was established in his heart. Well, y'all, we are eight chapters into a 14-chapter book, so we are officially in the back half. I'm not sure if we are halfway to hell or halfway through it, but here we are. And if you're thinking maybe this is where it gets good, well... No, it just gets more. Everything we've come to expect from this book, the extreme scripture hopping, the extremely white male monologues, the big bummer energy of John Bevere, it's all here and it is more. In fact, there is a story that John tells in this chapter and that we talk about a lot, and I think it has to be heard in its entirety to be believed and understood. And when I say believed, I mean for you to believe that it is in this book and to understand why we are so disturbed by it. So I'm about to read that now. It takes up almost three pages in the book, so this is going to take a few minutes. But trust me, you need to hear this. So for those of you who love the JB voice effect, we have been training for this. This is your time. So enjoy. When I was a pastor, a sharp 14-year-old young man who was well-respected by his friends and leaders was in the youth group. He was a good student and an accomplished athlete. Zealous for the things of God, the young man served faithfully and volunteered for every project. He took a mission trip with us, witnessing to almost everyone he met. At one point in his life, he spent four hours a day in prayer. He heard many things from the Lord and shared them with others. What he shared was always a blessing. He acknowledged his call to the ministry and wanted to be a pastor before the age of 20. He seemed to be an unshakable rock. I loved this young man, recognized the call of God on his life, and invested my time in him. I had only one concern. He seemed to have too much confidence in himself. I wanted to say something to him, but did not have a release to do so. I knew a change would come. He weathered some tough storms and yet stayed strong. Sometimes I questioned my discernment as I saw him endure severe trials. A few years passed, he moved, and I began to travel full-time, but I kept in touch with him. I knew he would go through a breaking process. Since it had to take place, I had no idea what would happen, but realized it was necessary for him in order to fulfill his destiny. This would be a similar process to Simon Peter's sifting. When this young man was 18, his father contracted incurable cancer. The young man and his mother fasted and prayed, believing that his dad would be healed. Others joined with them as well. Only months earlier, his dad had committed his life to the lordship of Jesus. 
The father's condition grew worse. I was ministering in another city in Alabama when my wife called, urging me to telephone this young man. I reached him and could see he needed someone to encourage him. I drove all that night after my last service, arriving at his house at four in the morning. His father's condition was so severe that the doctors gave him only days to live. He could not even communicate. The young man was confident that his dad would rise up healed. I ministered to the family and left several hours later. The next morning we had a call saying things had taken a turn for the worse. Lisa and I prayed immediately. As we did, God gave my wife a vision of Jesus standing by this man's bedside ready to take him home. Thirty minutes later, the young man called and told us his father had passed away. He seemed to be his same strong self, but that was only the beginning. That night, he called some of his close friends to tell them his father had died. When they answered the phone, they were crying. He wondered how they had already heard the news, but they hadn't heard. The tears they were crying were for one of his best friends who had just been killed in an accident, and one day he had lost his father and a very good friend. The shaking had begun. He was bewildered, frustrated, and numb. The presence of God seemed to have eluded him. A month later, driving home, the young man came upon an accident that had just taken place. He had had emergency medical training and stopped. Everyone in both cars was a close friend of his. Two died in his arms while he was trying to help. My young friend had reached his limit. He spent three hours in the woods praying and crying out to God, Where are you? You said you would be my comforter and I have no comfort. It seemed as if God had turned his back on him. But this was, in fact, the first time his own strength had failed him. He became angry with God. Why had he allowed this? He was not angry with his pastor, his family, or me. His offense was with God. He was consumed with frustration. God had failed him in his hour of greatest need. Lord, I've served you and laid many things down to follow you, he prayed. Now you have abandoned me. He believed God owed him something for all he had given up to serve him. Many people have experienced hurts and disappointments that are less extreme and some that are more. Many become offended with the Lord. They believe he should take into consideration all they have done for him. They are serving him for the wrong reasons. We should not serve the Lord for what he can do, but rather for who he is and what he has already done for us. Those who become offended do not fully realize how great a debt he has already paid for them to be free. They have forgotten from what manner of death they were delivered. They see through natural eyes rather than eternal. This young man stopped going to church and started running around with the wrong crowd, frequenting bars and parties. In his frustration, he wanted nothing to do with the things of the Lord. He wanted to avoid any contact with God. He could not keep this lifestyle for longer than two weeks, for his heart was deeply convicted, but he still refused to approach the Lord for six months. Even then, the heavens seemed to be as brass. The presence of the Lord seemed nowhere to be found. Over a year had gone by. Through several incidents, he saw that God was still at work in his life. He approached God, but now it was different. He came humbly. After this time of trial was over, the Lord showed him how he had never left him. As his spiritual walk was restored, he learned to put his confidence in God's grace, not in his own strength. I kept in touch with him. A year and a half later, he told me things he had seen in himself that he never knew were there. I was a man without character and shallow in all my relationships. I was raised by my dad to be strong outwardly, a self-made man. I could never have grown the way God wanted me to. I am thankful the Lord did not leave me in that condition. But what grieved my heart the most was not running around in bars and drinking. It was that I turned my back on the Holy Spirit. I love him so much. My fellowship with him has never been as sweet as it is now. So, yeah. There you go. And hey, that was a longer walk in the world of this book than I usually subject you to. So if you ever think maybe I'm being a little bit dramatic about how much of a bad theological bummer this book is, well, 
Maybe I am. But John Bevere is a thousand percent a drama queen, so I'm just vibing off the source material. Anyway, there's a lot to say, so keep your hands and arms inside this humble car lest they be sifted from your body as we jump into chapter eight with Melissa. In 2021, year of our Lord, like what does one say? We've always had these elevator speeches. It's like, this is who I am. This is what I do for a living. This is where I was born. And like, does anybody care? Does that even matter? Is that really who we are? So my name is Melissa. I live in New York City. I live on Roosevelt Island. And that is actually, I think, a big piece of my identity because it is the only place I've lived in New York in the entire 11 and a half years that I've been here. And it is, it's my little community. And so that's important to me. Um, I'm originally from Oregon. I am a biracial black woman raised in the Western Evangelical Church. Um, I work for the government. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. And yeah, that's, there you go. All right. So, The Bait of Satan. What is your history with this book? So when I first moved to New York City, I landed at, I guess you could call it a mega church. It shall not be named. But yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise to me that I was like, I felt like this is where God was leading me. And I was like, yeah, wait, what? Why? I don't know about this. Um, lovely people, lovely people. And I really enjoyed my time there. One of the things that was interesting was I sort of got into leadership pretty quickly, just based on having a history of being in church and being in church leadership from back home, getting on mission with them and the vision of church planting. And so uh, this church has a ministry called Cleansing Stream, which is not theirs. So I have no problem naming that. It's uh, actually out of California, Jack Hayford um, Church on the Way. And it's uh, basically a sort of, deliverance is kind of a strong word, but you know, like a sort of spiritual healing kind of, let's clean out the, the stuff that doesn't belong. And so their whole thing was like, if you are in leadership at this church, you must go through that ministry. And I was skeptical. Um, I come from Pentecostal background, Assemblies of God, Foursquare. And so that type of ministry, I'm super familiar with and completely aware of. But my, um, I had been on a sort of a reformation journey, reconstruction of my faith for probably like the five to seven years before I moved to New York. And so the voices I was listening to and the stuff that I was reading um, and the theology that was now shaping me was not about this type of ministry. And so I was very skeptical going into it and being like, oh man, like I don't really want to do this. But I do think I'm at the place where I'm supposed to be. I do think that this church is good. I think that this is something I want to be involved in. So let's let's try it out, right? Like how harmful can it be? <laughs> and I will say that my experience uh, with Cleansing Stream was actually really good. That's a whole other topic for a different podcast. Um, but this book was part of the curriculum. It was super, super um, curriculum heavy, a lot of reading, thankfully, mostly scripture, but there were some other materials. And this book, The Bait of Satan was one of them. So I read it first in that context. And so this would have been about 11 years ago that I first came to the knowledge of this book. Ooh, I forgot all about Cleansing Stream. I forgot oh. it, it existed, but I know it. I forgot I know it, it existed. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you feel about the prospect of reading part of it again? So I felt interested. It's so funny because this all came up, right? Because you had posted something about taking offense 
because all these people out there all of a sudden have all these vague social media posts. <laughs> like, you know, they're not talking to anybody in particular, but they just want to somehow just talk about offense all the time. And so you were like, where did this even come from? And so I like, you know, just messaged back and I was like, well, you know, my understanding of it, the, the um, root of it is this book, The Bait of Satan. So I was actually a little intrigued and interested because I hadn't picked the book up in a couple of years. I think I actually probably read it twice because I will say that there, I got some good stuff out of it um, when I read it. Again, that was, a, I think, a really transformational point in my relationship with God and in my walk um, as a Christian. And so a lot of that had to do with becoming self-aware and becoming aware of my stuff, um, which a lot of it is not spiritual, right? It's just personality. <laughs> it's our upbringing um, and it's our culture and it's a lot of that stuff. So we don't have to like over-spiritualize it, but we can actually say that we're flawed humans who can get better. Hey! So yeah, so for me, this, this book was actually a helpful part of that journey for me. And so I was intrigued by the idea of revisiting this book, especially because of the ways in which I have changed so much in 10 years. And it's something like this, an exercise like this, that sometimes really shows you how much you have changed. And I have changed a lot. So, and especially because it was just one chapter, God bless you. It was like, read one chapter. And as much as I am an avid reader and I love reading, the second something gets assigned, I'm like, oh, it's kryptonite. I don't know. I don't know why. I literally read all day every day. So it was with mixed emotions, but um, with curiosity, I revisited the book and the chapter that you gave me, which is everything that can be shaken will be, what is it called? I'm butchering it. All that can be shaken will be shaken. Chapter eight. What was it about? Well, it purports to be about the idea of, of sifting and about things that shake our foundations uh, when our foundations are not in Christ, right? For our for our betterment. That's the idea. And what did you think? So I wrote an overarching statement about this, and it is right message, wrong audience, with all of those inflections. Because wow, right? I start reading this chapter and you had asked uh, one of the sort of questions in preparation about the use of scripture, which obviously I think when we're talking about things from a theology standpoint with people who are putting scripture forward, it's so important to do. And so it was funny because you sent the, the preface and I read that, which cracked me up because it literally opens with a vague recommendation for the book itself. <laughs> You know, it's like chapter one and I'm like, okay, so what is, is it a quote? Is it scripture? It's like, this was very good for me and you should read it too. And I was like, well, that's one way to open a book. Okay. That usually goes up at the end, but all right. This chapter was started uh, with Hebrews 12 and you know, scripture is tricky, right? Like sometimes you read it and you're like, wait, what? And I feel like that is sort of what he started this with. And so when that happens to me, when I'm reading scripture and I'm like, I don't know that I understand what is being said. The words are English, but somehow I'm not. So I was, when that happens, I go to the message. So I pull up the message translation. And I'm like, let me read this, which is really fascinating because I read it in the ESV. I read it in the NIV and then I read it in the message. And I think that's really, what's really fascinating. God bless Eugene Peterson is that there's a section 
that, um, can I just read it really quickly? It's super brief. It says, he told us this quite plainly. He'll also rock the heavens. One last shaking from top to bottom, stem to stern. The phrase one last shaking means a thorough house cleaning, getting rid of all the historical and religious junk so that the unshakable essentials stand clear and uncluttered. I was like, oh, the historical and the religious junk. <laughs> well, that's, that's eye-opening because that's not, that's not in the version that John put at the beginning of this chapter. And so I think the thing that is most salient to me was even without having read this part, um, this verse that he uses out of the message, this whole chapter for me was like, this is a picture, like the, the people that he's talking about. What are some of the phrases that he used? Quarrelsome and oppositional. And I was just like, I, I, I actually know some people who this book seems to describe. Churches are full of them. You know, big mega churches are, are full of them right now. And they are having political rallies and they are anointing military generals and they're giving AK-47s away from the stage of their church. And so for me, it was just like, whoa. Um, and that's why I said like, right message, wrong audience. Because he, of course, thinks he's speaking to thin-skinned people who have somehow twisted the grace of God into something bad um, and gotten offended by hard truths from their pastor and by God himself. And I'm like, it's crazy to me because the people who you're describing in this chapter are, are people right now who are filling church views, who call themselves, you know, Christians, who are fervent in their faith and their belief system, and who are quarrelsome and oppositional, who you can't tell anything to, and who are constantly offended. And so to me, I was just like, whoa. Um, right. He brings up that idea of when the enemies is the opposition, right? It's like, you know, oh, we would have, if, if this was today, people, people would have said, let's pray for Peter that, you know, he's under attack by the enemy as opposed to recognizing that, that God is behind the sifting. And again, it's just, it's the language of the Western evangelical church today, right? Everything is a plot of Satan. We're always under attack. There's always an enemy. There's always the enemy is opposing us. And so that's why the hardship is coming. So yeah, right message, wrong audio. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm reading the whole book. And so this chapter, well, it was, is, is the most coherent so far. Like this was the oh, first chapter that like for the first couple of pages, I was like, fine. He's actually kind of staying on topic and I can kind of see where he's going. And he's not, he sprinkles, like he jumps from scripture to scripture and like ties things together all the time. But this one, I'm like, okay, I can kind of, I can kind of track with him. So, I mean, issues I have throughout the book are, yeah, his use of scripture, just pulling things from everywhere and putting them together and reading through it this time. I'm like, I don't, I don't even have the, the patience to like try to go through and fact check all this, but I'm like, okay, I'm just going to leave it. And some of it, I just know just from knowing right. this, these don't go together. Exactly. Fine. So it's like that. It's when he's telling these stories and when he's putting his thoughts into these, these people, so every everything, pretty much everything he was saying for Peter, saying about Peter, I'm like, what? Where are you getting this from? You're just creating these characters. I was feeling so bad for Judas. <laughs> <Right>? and, then, 
And then I'm feeling towards the back, the back half, I'm like, well, I'm feeling like Judas because some of the things that you're lobbying at him are the things that people are saying about people who are deconstructing now. Well, you never, he never really loved Jesus. He was never really about it. He never, and I'm like, oh. And then when he gets to, you know, that story of, of that young man and all that stuff that he happened to and how hard he was on him, then that brought up another issue I have with the book is how he just uses the word offense to like cover everything. So I've been going through and like circling offended and like filling in what other words could go here. It's not offense, it's disappointment, it's sadness, it's, you know, frustration. It's all these other things that are not offense. Like everything can't be offense, especially if you're making it this sin, like this greatest sin, then you're basically saying every, what we classify as negative emotion is offense and is a sin. And then for me, you know, being where I am, I'm like, well, this kind of brings me to kind of a thought I've always kind of had about Christianity. Where I'm like, it's not, it's a really hard sell and it's not really a, a good deal. <laughs> you know, he gets mad at people. You only want what God can do for you. And I'm like, that's, that's not what people are about. But if they are, is that the worst thing in the world? It's like, if, if God is, God can do anything but won't. Put it, what's the benefit of serving God, especially if people are going to be shitty because people are shitty. Yes. And being in the church is no guarantee that people are going to be any better. And then now I like doubly have to come underneath these awful people for the sake of a God who won't stop these awful people. Like, it's just such, I'm like, I just don't get it. I don't get it. Yes. And like, there's, there was, there was so much that is wrong with Western evangelical culture that is, that is backed up in this book. It sort of implicitly, I started like making all these notes in the margin at any time that it really stuck out to me. And these ideas that a lot of authoritarianism, a ton of misogyny, um, <laughs> there's so much dehumanizing, right? Like the ways in which he tells the story about the young man, the humans are a prop, Right. His father is a prop. His best friend who dies is a prop. These people that he heroically tries to save who die in his arms, props. Yeah. You know, they're just they're they don't really matter. They were just right. you know, they're props to his greater story that this is all about him. And I just was like, it just brought me up short, right? Because storytelling is so incredibly important. It's so important. And it really just made me think about the ways we must be careful when we handle story because of the harm just that can do there is the ways in which he talked about eve the way he mentioned more than once that this is just some oh just a little servant girl you know that, that oh. denies that a god our god too just you know it's this little thing just this little stumbling block and i'm like all of these are part and parcel of just this greater cultural anti-woman um and again, like he talked about this idea of why won't you serve the master? And it just reminded me of the idea. I'm like, Jesus literally says, I call you friends. I do not call you slaves. Slaves do not know what their master's business is. So I don't call you that. So I'm like, John, why are you using that terminology? That's super weird. I say uh, so many times, all right, JB, what are we doing? I call them that too in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I too, I, I circled that little servant girl. I was like, why, why are we doing this? Why are and then we doing that this? whole thing, like contrasting Peter and Judas. First of all, didn't, 
I mean, we all know Peter goes on to deny Jesus, mm-hmm. but even, you know, that whole, we say not many cowards attack when they are outnumbered by enemy soldiers. I'm like, well, isn't, couldn't this have been a form of suicide attempt where Ooh. he's just <laughs> like, we are outnumbered. Jesus has said, I'm going to die. So Peter's oh. like, okay, he's already said, you know, I'm going to die with you. Let's just go now. Cause how else was I going to go? Right. Mind blown. Okay. Thank you. Never even thought of it that way. And yes. So then to contrast that with, oh, and then, you know, yeah, he's going to take on this army. And then he's scared of this little, this little servant girl. I'm like, no, Peter's whole plan got disrupted. And now he doesn't know what's what. He's like, no, I knew how I was going out. I knew how this was going to go. Yeah. And now I don't know anything. Right. And Jesus is arrested, beaten, mocked. Right. Like it's not been the smoothest three, three and a half years that they've been through together but but never anything like this nothing like this jesus has walked away unscathed every time right he just every time the back <laughs> goes right. his business but um, again to see your not your master yeah. if you see your master getting beat up and brutalized nobody cares but your friend right the one you yeah changed everything for laid down everything for yeah that that um dismissiveness of the situations is super problematic all throughout. And again, it just, it reminds me so much of other texts by popular Christian authors who very, you know, purport to bring these big spiritual messages. How often do they all do this? They just twist things. They play up things that, you know, maybe out of proportion, they definitely dismiss things. And in so dehumanize, right? You're dehumanizing Peter. Like, oh, he shouldn't have been afraid. Really? It's, it might be easy for us to see us to see this side of the crucifixion, right? Thousands right. of years later, with all of this scripture and revelation, we're like, okay, well, we knowing know how, how the goes. story turns out. Thank you. Well, I know Jesus is coming back. Come on, chill out, Peter. It's gonna be fine. <laughs> right. But it's wild the ways in which the critiques come, and I think that that is probably right there. Yeah, just a theme. It's wild in the ways that the critiques come. Poor Judas. I don't even want to read this whole paragraph, but I just. And I said, I hate this. I just like, I hate it. If Judas was the stone cold character, why would he have killed himself? He got what he wanted, right? He right. wanted money over, over Jesus. Yeah. So why? He was so grieved by his epiphany. Right? He had a come to Jesus moment. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. But he's, you know, forever down as this, this villain. I get it. But I also, I get it. I'm like, we've all done things you just think you cannot come back from right and perhaps that's actually the true humility humiliation humility so speaking of judas i made a note again the top of page 84 Mm -hmm. who does that remind you of describing all that judas didn't accomplish in jesus name i'm like how many people are out there right now (laughs) laying on hands praying for the sick preaching and so for so much of this i'm like man he gets so close and then just goes all the way all the way to the wrong side because yeah i'm like how do you not how do you not read how do you not write these things and like zero self-reflection zero looking at yourself because you're yeah he cast out devils healed the sick preached the gospel yeah like jesus said people would do those things in his name and you would still not know them but his sacrifices were not out of love for Jesus or out of a revelation for who he was. How do we know that? You just decided what this man thought 
and felt. And that's so unfair. It's extremely unfair. And at the same time, you would be mad if we turned around and lobbied that same thought at you. And the people you're hanging out with these days. Yeah. Because, I mean, honestly, the whole book, it makes me mad because it's just bad for many reasons. But it bumps me out. Like, John Beer makes me sad. Because I'm like, your view of God is so rough. And it's so, it's so hard. And I'm like, and I don't, I don't even believe in God like that anymore. Mm-hmm. But I've never thought of God like that. Like even now. And like, I feel like that's part, part of why I deconstructed. I'm like, no, I want God to be better than what, what I've been told. Yeah. Like I just, this, this is the God that sent me out. Cause I was like, I can't, I can't get with this. Yeah. <clears throat> No, I think that's, I think that's a really excellent point. Um, and I think that's part of what led to my restructuring because this is that very man-centered theology. That's like, it's all about you and your choices and what you do and what you choose and how you live. And then God is just this, he's disappointed. He's frustrated. He's upset. (laughs) You know, he just is waiting for you to get it. He's just waiting. You know, and that was the theology that I was raised with that always made me think, um, I do believe that there is a God and I do believe that he's good. And I do believe that like he's worth engaging with, but I'm never going to be perfect. And so I'm just going to kind of live my life the way I want to, because I'm not a perfectionist. I don't, that's not a struggle that I have. (laughs) So I'm not one of those people that's like, I'm going to work really, really hard. I'm going to be like, no, I'm I'm just, I'm actually going to have some fun. This is going to be over here. Doing this thing, um, deuces, God, cool, like, yeah, you know where I'm at, right? Um, because I just I can't keep up. I would like to. I see other people really working hard at it. I still I see people telling me I'm supposed to, but I just yeah, I don't have it in me. I'm not I'm not motivated um, in that way. And so, thankfully, I actually ended up having this really cool sort of revelation with God, where I think He actually began to open my eyes to his actual beauty. Mm-hmm. And like you just said, it doesn't look anything like what I, the theology I was raised with. Thank God. You know? And so, yeah. So when I see pieces like this, where those messages are coming through loud and clear from this author, it, it is, it's, it's saddening because he is putting a, a heavy yoke and a burden on people's necks right. in the name of um, delivering them from something from hell i guess like ultimately but like this is this is a different kind right it's just yeah that difference between master and friend he's like no we're going with master and then jesus you know no like my yoke is easy thank you john Bamir is like no it's not right put this on yeah jesus is like i know your dirt i made you from dirt and john's like no we have to think this way and turn this cheek and not be offended and also do this and stand on your head. And it's a choice. Wait, no, it's the grace of God given for people who actually love him. Like, which is it? Which is it? <laughs> and it's the enemy, but also the God, will yes. use, you know, God will use what the enemy is doing to sit. What? Right. How? And sometimes Why? we need to rebuke it and oppose it. And sometimes we just need to what sit under it. I don't. Yeah. I'm not sure. What else? Yeah, I think I was I was most taken by, again, just a lot of that problematic language. Even I'm sure you caught the part where he talks about testing our children's obedience, love, and maturity, right? Like that's why God puts us through uh, through trials so he can test. Our, and I was like, I'm sorry, you did 
You did what to your kids? <laughs> like, no. I can see testing somebody's maturity by giving them something and being like, can you handle this or not? Like, I'm going to give you the car keys. Are you going to be responsible with my car or not? Right? That's maturity. Right. But I'm going to do something to test your love for me and your obedience? Like, are your kids okay? <laughs> Yikes. Ooh. That's all, yeah. That is not love. That is not love. But it's, again, like, it's just these... That, that whole authoritarian, we're forever the slave, we're forever yeah. the child, we're forever the servant, like never, never the friend, never that's tension I'm having with my mom now. I'm like, I don't feel like you respect me as an adult. Like, you know, you still feel like you are spiritually responsible for me or in charge of me. You're not. And I... And I get it. I get it when this, this is your theology this and the fear exactly. of hell is the real thing. But like, I don't, I don't have that. And I can't take that from you, but like, I'll, I need you to respect me. Amen. I don't, I don't believe in that God. Bad things happen because bad things happen. But right. a good God does not need to do bad things to me to, to teach me things. Like you said, all right, we have worked on your driving skills. Yeah. Now I'm going to give you these keys. And trust you to do the right thing. You know, mistakes will be made. Mistakes we'll figure it out made. on the other end. But I'm not not waiting for people to do bad things to say, ha ha, I knew it. <laughs> so what you just said reminded me of um, another problematic piece in this. And this goes back to the storytelling aspect. Um, and again, this this reminds me so much of, of the testimony type storytelling that we have historically used in the Western evangelical church and how gross and problematic it is, is that it's the idea of one and done, right? <laughs> so this young man, he, you know, all these bad things happened. So he just, he had to run away from God. He had to go to the bars and parties. He had right. to run with the wrong crowd for two whole weeks. <laughs> for two weeks. Just... Oh, Wild and just reckless, just out um, there. But then there was a whole six more months, six months that he would not speak to God. And I was just like, this is literally one of the worst examples of this gross testimonial stuff, right? Yeah. And so then he's like, well, because this young man was broken, his selfishness is gone and his pride is gone. And I was like, what a dangerous stinking message is that? Like this idea that it's an ever ascending ladder of perfection. I'm like, this is where John Wesley went wrong, right? Like this idea that you could become perfect on earth. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I think that that is another aspect of this, of the evangelical faith that we see, especially among people who are more driven towards self-righteousness. And I mean that mm -hmm. in from like, a, they really want to save themselves. They want to be able to, to, to put something forth for their salvation and it's such a dangerous message. And, and so many people have, have done that. Right? Like, well, I've been through that. I, oh, I got that lesson. I learned that lesson. I'm, I'm, I'm good now. I don't do that anymore. I'm not like that anymore. And I'm like, oh, that is so dangerous. Because now you have a massive blind spot where you're like, oh, I did that. Learn, learn that lesson. Checked off that Checked box. Checked off that box. And I will never be selfish or prideful again. <laughs> so if you think that I am. Ha ha. That's something That's on you. on you. You're offended. Thank you. You need to figure that out. Because it can't be me because I learned that lesson. I got free of that sin. I'm good. And for this young man, it only took 
was it four deaths, <laughs> two I, weeks, yeah, and six months, and six months, and then for, even for him, because I'm like, okay, being indoctrinated mm-hmm. in this, mm-hmm. I was like, no, I know what that would be. Yeah, you can only do it for two weeks. You're already feeling miserable about all these other things. Your whole mm-hmm. life is already in flux. Of course, you're going to come back to the only thing you've ever known. And he said, what did he say? He told me there were things he had seen himself. He never knew were there. I was a man without character and shallow in all my relationships. I'm like, how old is this kid? <laughs> like, who? What? Like, that's that was what God had to take four people out to like right exactly these props in your life not real humans <laughs> to teach you yeah they didn't matter but they were sure a good lesson weren't they they were a great lesson to get you to get you into the ministry thank god and get you over your pride and your selfishness Whew. right and then you know something jb does throughout all the book is that he'll he'll start a story and then he'll kind of in, infer how it goes. And that's when I knew she was going to be bad for the church. And then he'll go on and he'll never come back to the story. So he just leaves you to think things went the way he, he said they did. But like oh, he never God. actually finishes it. And then with this, I'm like, this is a, this is a wild story. Yeah. This, is, this is a lot. And I feel like if you, if you were going to put this in a book, if this were my story, there's no way I'm not going to recognize this story. Right. Right. Like, yes. <laughs> no way. No, that was someone else. So if you're going to go, say it with your chest, put a name in here, put something we can verify and fact check and look and see, well, where is this dude at now? Where are they now? Yeah. He just leaves it hanging. So then you're meant to, oh, I guess he's still in the ministry to this day. Of course. Doing great things for Jesus. Happy, happy about it all. Wouldn't change a thing. Not prideful. Not selfish. Perfect specimen. Not shallow in any of his relationships. Happily ever after. Right. One and done. One and done. Happily ever after. The only way to go. And so for those of us who know ourselves and know that we are not okay, (laughs) and we move through the world in a way that is not okay on many days, um, right? How condemning is it to read things like this? If you were only better, if you only loved God more, he might grant you this. as well because because what are you even complaining about right because that was again like the back half of this chapter i'm like oh this is this is all this is all about me you know those who are hurt and disappointed are those who have come to jesus for what he can do for them not because of who he is they never they never laid down their lives for jesus when it's when a severe disappointment occurs they are offended with god and will have nothing to do with him i'm like who are these people who I mean, I will, I'll be honest, I, I've, again, in being in church for almost five decades, um, I've definitely met some humans like that. Um, but I think that instead of writing a book and being like, hey, here's a thing, I, I think people, number one, need to be listened to, right? Like, what? so what is at the heart and the root of this? Where is this coming from? And yeah, there was that part where that part where he differentiates between people who've actually been harmed, right? He's like, there's two kinds of people that are offended, which I'm always like, red flag when you say things like that. But <laughs> he does acknowledge, right? People who've actually been harmed, which I'm also like, okay, I don't think I would call that offended. You're, you've right. been harmed. You're harmed. You're, You're harmed. Um, and then when you fast forward to the end, I took a look, you know, at the epilogue because you had added that as well. 
And he suggests this idea almost of like a, a 12 step, you know, think of them and release them and forgive them for which in general, I think that is, I think that is great. Um, I think that is great advice. I think harboring grudges and hurt is, is just not good for you, but there is no differentiation. He's like, then he's like, and then go to them. Right. There's no consideration for crimes and, and trauma. There is no accountability. There's just like, oh, go to them and then like release that. Not, hey, go to them and be like, can I actually talk to you about the ways in which you have harmed me and maybe harmed others for the sake of yourself, for the sake of your relationship with God and other people, for the sake of, of all of that. He just ties it up with this neat little bow of like, pray to forgive them and then go tell them you did that because you might win a brother over. And I'm like, people have experienced unspeakable things at the hands of other humans and you make no differentiation in this epilogue for that whatsoever no the chapter where he deals with with people who have actually been offended because most of the book is for people who just think they have yes but people who have actually been offended is story of joseph um and basically you know joseph was offended by his brothers but it was God's plan. So was he really offended ultimately? When he was, so he was put in a pit and then he was sold, <laughs> sold into slavery. But we're, we're calling that offense. That's, a, that's offense. Are getting that straight? That's, that's legitimate offense. Oh, okay. But again, at the end of it, he just had to forgive them and accept that it was God's plan, you know, for his betterment the whole time. And he completely leaves out the part where, you know, Joseph tests his brothers before he welcomes them back in. Mm -hmm. Completely leaves that out. So if you didn't know and you just read his version of the mm -hmm. story, all these things happened and his brothers came and it was all good. Instantly forgave them. Neat little bow. You know, neat little bow. One and done. Have our bows. Happily ever after. So clean and so fresh. Yeah, it reminds me of the way we dumb down Bible stories for children. We just make these little two-dimensional felt characters we can slap up on the board. And the fact that grown adults are writing books for other grown adults using those same <laughs> tactics, that's offensive. <laughs> I'm offended. I mean, really, like we're talking about the God of the universe who we purport to love. And this is what we reduce it down to. Some, yeah. some sin management, behavior modification, um, glossing over real harms, traumas that a God of justice would never gloss over. Yeah. He must be so pleased. So in the preface of his book, John Bevere says, the book you hold is quite possibly the most important confrontation with truth you'll encounter in your lifetime. And then later he says, this book is not a theory. It is God's word made flesh. Thoughts on that? So I wrote a word to answer this question. I bet you can guess what it is. Uh, let's see. Supreme confidence. Uh, it's a heresy. The word is heresy. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be bantied about lightly. Oh, you mean just, just that little bit where he basically equates this book with Jesus? With Jesus. <laughs> yes. You all, can I be offended on behalf of Jesus? <laughs> yes. That, that was something else again people who move, especially in the more Pentecostal circles, we, they love to hyper spiritualize things. 
even to the like there was this little piece i'm sure you caught it where he was like talking about oh man this is something the definition of something and he was like god revealed to my wife lisa oh um, is that when they were those five things five things oh sh- shaken sifted shaken five the five purposes for shaking an object yeah I was like, I don't, that's not divine revelation. That's just, <laughs> if you know, if you know what it is to shake something, it just, right. Like the need to, to do that, like, oh God, this special, right. And then again, it elevates the, this, this book as God breathed. Right. No. Yeah. Which I was like, I wish, I wish I had this kind of confidence for anything. Well, you have said that. But- what? God give me the confidence to mediocre white man. <laughs> It's wild. I'm like, I wish I just had the temerity to tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, this thing I wrote, a hundred percent of people need it. God, God gave this to me. And you know what? And I'm fine. I'm fine with that if everybody gets to say that. Right. Like everybody gets to say that their things are God breathed. Everything is divine. Fine. But for you, white American man, to decide that you have the great revelation that everybody needs. It's so, it's so typical. Yes. This is what we've come to believe. This is what we've come to expect. Yeah. If you are called and anointed, this is what it's going to look like. It's, it is something else. Yeah. So based on your chapter, who is this book for? Well, as we said earlier, I think this book is (laughs) in his mind, you know, is written to, some thin-skinned people who take things out of context and and get their noses out of joint and somehow that also you know then keeps them from god right because it's got to be a bigger issue than just be being offended or we wouldn't be writing this christian book about it but it would be super fascinating for me to see this book prescribed to big white evangelical audiences that would be fascinating i would i would be I mean, I, obviously, I know what they would say. They'd be like, oh, these are, this is describing those liberals and um, all those great <laughs> people, right? Because we have, we have this issue of, uh, of a lack of self-awareness. And I think that's actually the, the bigger issue. Like, we talk about our isms, right? Like, racism. Doesn't matter if you have good motives. What matters is the outcome of your behaviors, And I think that that also goes to precisely what we're talking about. We have a lot of people moving to the world who think they have good motives. They're doing harm. And so what they want is for you to just get their skin and just be okay with who they are. And I think it's a, I think it's a both and I always use the phrase and I say this to people all the time, especially when there's conflict, like assume good motives, unless someone looks you in your face and is like, I intend to harm you. Like do your best to assume good motives, especially with people you're in relationship with and know, but that also looks like accountability. You don't, you don't just be like, I don't think they meant to hurt me. Ouch. Oh. And then you just go about your day. If you really love them, you will say something. So that they will stop doing this. So they will stop hurting others and thus hurting themselves. That also reminded me of that story that he talked about the young man. This this hyper-spiritualization of, you know, I prayed for him, but I didn't feel like I had an in to speak into it. And I was like, you're literally his mentor. And you have the audacity to say, 
I recognize this giant thing that's wrong with you. But I didn't feel like the Holy Spirit gave me <laughs> the go-ahead and the permission. Right? This isn't a peer. This isn't somebody who's even an authority over you. This was like somebody who who you're discipling, guiding, and shepherding. And you were like, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> like, that's crazy. And so we yeah. shouldn't do that to our friends. We shouldn't do that to our peers. We shouldn't do that to people that we're in ministry with. And I'm a big fan of like, do it early and do it often, right? Don't make it awkward. If there's, if there is a thing, if there's stuff, like, let's talk to each other. Let's use our words. Um, and then we can figure out if it's an issue. And if you are somebody who is surrounded by a bunch of people who are offended and thin skinned, maybe, just maybe, <laughs> it might be the way you move through the world. And maybe just maybe it might not be okay. Even if you think you have good intentions, you might actually need to do some self-reflecting and figure out what on earth is going on that makes this keep happening. Because like, it can't be that like, the Lord needs me mm. to keep trying to change the same kind of people. Like, how am I surrounded by all these rude, selfish, thin-skinned people all the time? And I'm the one that's like speaking to their life. Mm. Like, no, maybe there's something about me that's attracting that. Maybe like attracts like. Mm -hmm. Or... Oh, these people, they always, this happens and they always start avoiding me. You know? <laughs> maybe the this is something that I'm doing. Maybe, maybe God is sifting you. And, you know, the circumstance of people avoiding you or being upset with you is actually pointing out something that he wants to change about you. Hey. Could, could be. I'm seeing, is that a number, a number six that the Lord... We'll reveal to Lisa one day. Maybe that's it. Surprise! It turns out it was you all along. Yeah. <laughs> There's some revelation. But I wonder, like, uh, kind of a thought exercise I've been having lately is, if, should, should, like, white men even be allowed to, to preach anymore or be allowed to write books? Like, should we put a put a stop on that and try to, try to let everybody else catch up? Because I'm like, do we need to hear this perspective anymore? Because even just thinking about relationship stuff, I'm like, aren't women, are we just more, just better at that kind of thing and just a little more self-aware? Because I know if I'm seeing, I notice if, okay, this has happened to me with two people, I'm already looking within. I'm like, okay, what am I, <laughs> what am I doing? Is this me? You know, if I'm out on the street and I feel like people keep bumping into me, I'm like, am I, is it me? Am I not, you know, aware of my space? So I'm like, is it, have we just hurt? Is there enough of this perspective? Like, is there any white man that we need to hear from at this point? So, so that's a good question. <laughs> um, and it, it's an interesting question. Um, and I, and it, it brings me back to this idea, you know, like what is something that is, that is important to be being held up right now? And to me, it is the idea of decolonizing our faith. And I know that that's become a huge buzzword right now. And so I'm like, no, really decolonizing, right? Because I think a lot of people have been like, oh, what's that? And then they like look it up and they kind of read a definition and they're like, yes, I, I mentally assent to the idea of that. So now they think they've done it. Right. When no, you've just begun to scratch the surface of it. And so I don't necessarily want to throw the baby of white men out with the bathwater of bad theology necessarily because I do I think God can speak through anyone 
Um, and I think that that's important. I think we need to do a better job of figuring out who we platform and why. Yeah. And I think we need to do a better job of testing messages, testing the spirits, as they say, and just not accepting. And that, and that's going to take, that's going to take all of us decolonizing, right? We've got to come out from our paradigms of white supremacy. We've been soaking in it. It's all we know. Um, and it is, and this is like work I've kind of been doing for the last 10 years. Um, that's tied to my employment and opportunities I've had. And I still find myself, um, thinking thoughts that I'm like, oop, that's not, that is not of Christ. That's, that's colonized theology. That's, that's bad religion. And I have to dissect those things and let go of those things. Um, and so I think if you have white men who are willing to do that work, yeah, because there is the idea of credible messenger. I remember that there was a particular voice that was, um, he was really harping on Beth Moore and he was like, black women have been saying this and black men have been saying this. And it's like, I love you. You're not wrong. But there are people who are going to listen to Beth Moore who are not going to listen <laughs> to anybody else. And so I think for that reason, there, there is an importance if we actually want to change things, if we actually want people to get free, if that's really what we're about. And that's what I'm about. It is going to take all of us. Um, that being said, I do think I've been really making a conscious decision of changing who I'm listening to um, because you're you're right. Like there's these heady debates and theological debates that are happening in certain circles with people who have never been oppressed, with people who've never yeah. really known lack, and so they aren't going to be in, able to engage even with scripture in the in the same mm-hmm. ways that someone else is going to, and I need to hear from those other someone else's. We all need to be hearing from those other someone else's. And in the white Western evangelical world, those voices have been shut down. I know I have sat in churches. I didn't know what liberation theology was, but I have heard messages preached against it. So I was indoctrinated from a young age, right? A get away from um, black theological voices. And so it's just basically time to reclaim all of that. It's not new. It's like, let's just, you know, let's revisit it and dig it up. Yeah, because sometimes I'll be reading things and I'm like, oh my God, this was written in the 90s, in the 80s. Like, I can't imagine, I can't imagine how those people have like stayed, stayed the path and kept doing the work. So I'm like, that had to be so frustrating to be, to be shouting these things. <laughs> and we were 20 years from waking up. But, but you're right, because I even know for myself, even starting to deconstruct, some of the first voices I was listening to were white men because those were the voices I was used to hearing from yeah. and giving giving credibility yes. to things. Yeah. And then, yeah, like you, then I moved on. I'm like, okay, I don't need that anymore. And now I can, yeah, hold on to these other things. So there is definitely a space, <laughs> but I'm like, no, John Bevere, no, not you. <laughs> <laughs> Round file. So looking at this book from the perspective that everything is permissible. I can't stop John Brevere from writing a book. I don't want to. Anyone should be able to write whatever they want. But not everything is beneficial. On a scale from 10, beneficial for everyone. Five, it's, it's permissible. It's neutral. It's just sitting there. It's not doing anything. To one, harmful for everyone. Where would you put this book? So I thought about this and I have done hot a little bit. Um... I would put this book today in the, in the frame of mind that I'm in, you know, I reserve the right to change my, my mind. Um, I would say this is about a 4.5 and 
And that is based on the fact that I think in part this is a real issue. It's not like fully manufactured and he's not a thousand percent wrong. However, um, he has not addressed it to the right audience. Mm -hmm. And and again, the ways in which he has um, misused and mishandled scripture, storytelling, and some of those other things are harmful. And so I would say that this would be, again, I would would love to see this book assigned to large right-wing congregations. And then I would just love to hear the discussions afterwards and see what they have to say. Um, I feel like maybe a, a handful of people would get it and then everybody else would just actually be doubling, tripling, quadrupling down and being more entrenched. Um, so now it's even just saying that now you're making me be like, no, maybe it's a, just a two. Cause I don't even think it would have the, I don't even think it would have the, um, intended benefit, which is sad, but you know, if God can speak through a donkey, <laughs> And like I said, this, this actually, this book was, was, I will say this book was beneficial to me because all I do remember is the, the good pieces of doing that self-reflection on myself, of becoming really self-aware of my own, um, hubris and, um, the way I held things that would allow me to get offended where I wasn't assuming good motives and I wasn't having grace for people who, who needed that grace. So, okay. Two and a two. I'll get a two. All right. It's fair to me. So John Bevere has been around the world preaching this book, has been platformed, and you know, this is what he chose as the bait of Satan. So if you could have John Bevere's platform, could write a book, could go into all the churches he went into and they had to listen to you, what would your bait of Satan be? What are you telling them about? First of all, do I get a bulletproof vest? <laughs> Because if I'm going into those churches, um, I might need one. Uh, well, I think it's a, I think it's exactly what I, I sort of touched on, and I think I feel like most people would probably answer this way. And it is it's white Christian nationalism, and entwined with that, the need to decolonize Christianity. And and it, I think that people are saying that um, it's been fascinating to watch sort of heroes of the faith who have been bold enough to stand up and be like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This is an actual problem. And watch them just get annihilated by people who used to put them on a pedestal. Exactly. Um, And so that's been fascinating to watch. Uh, It really makes me thankful, so incredibly thankful that I live in New York City and that I am a part of a church that's doing this work, right? That is a safe space where we're having these conversations, where we're reading Jesus and John Wayne together. Uh, yeah, we're actually having um, the author, Kristen Dumay, come to our church and do um, a little two-part thing with us. Because we're like, this is this is a problem. And we're, we all come from, you know, my, my pastors, myself, other of our church leaders, we all come from white Western evangelical megachurch. We were all indoctrinated with this. We were all raised with this. And we have watched the world lose its mind. And the only thing we can point back to is why is it so loud and why doesn't it look like Jesus? And so, um, yeah, so so I think that the this very real danger of white Christian nationalism, which is which is the the faith of American churches today, Western churches today. Yeah, that would be my, that would be my, my tour. Ooh, 
That's so good. And it's been so far I would get. <laughs> everybody, everybody has had a different answer so far. Oh, they have? And, oh my gosh, and every wait. everything has been like, oh yes. Yes. <laughs> and none of them have been offense. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. Oh, I cannot wait to hear the other podcast. <laughs> so what what is something you would recommend? Because we're taking this off the bookshelf, throwing it in the trash. Right. So I had to think about this because I don't actually consume a lot of media. Um, I don't have a TV. I don't like listening to a lot of stuff. I don't even listen to a ton of podcasts. Um, but so two things. I did I draw, did draw something from pop culture. Uh, it's something that I watched recently. And this is not going to be palatable for everybody. And it is a little an interesting thing. Um, it's actually a Netflix uh, short series called Midnight Mass. Okay. That um, I watched with a dear friend of mine, uh, and I think there was like seven episodes. It is macabre. It is violent, um, but it is set uh, on a small island, I believe, off the coast of Maine, and it <clears throat> delves into religion and church and Christianity and vampirism. Right, like sort of looking at uh, the sacrament, uh, the Eucharist, mm-hmm. drink my blood, eat my body. It's it was fascinating. Um, if you're a fan of of horror, I highly recommend it. I think it was really really well done and actually super thoughtful. So there's that. And then the other one is one I. It's a little bit of a cheat because I haven't actually read it, and it's this book, Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle by Dante Stewart. I only haven't read it because I just got it in the mail like two days ago. But this man is a gift and a treasure. Um, so while I haven't yet read this book, I do follow him on Insta and I read his posts every day. I swipe through all of the myriad. Um, you know, I think he he posted Twitter and then he reposted. And he has been such an incredible voice to me in that idea of reclaiming Black leaders of the faith. And who should we be listening to? And who has been speaking, you know, for generations that has been covered or has been lost, who's been twisted? Um, And just such beauty watching him on his own journey, right, coming out of the white evangelical spaces into loving his black self. And so um, I jumped on the uh, opportunity to pre-order that book and then I just received it. So I'm very excited to read that. Um, and I everybody should be following him and everybody should be listening to him. I can second that. Yeah. I haven't gotten the book yet, but only because my list right now is out of control. I can only but imagine. It will get there. So, well, Melissa, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Melissa, I knew it would be great. And it was. Aww, it was wonderful to spend time with you. And thank you for just doing this. What an incredible opportunity to engage our minds and hearts around this very, very important topic of sort of, yeah, sifting. Ooh, imagine that. Sifting some stuff, <laughs> seeing what stays. It's what the Lord revealed to me. Amen. Amen. And in closing. Offenses will reveal the weakness and breaking points in our lives. Often the point where we think we are strong is our place of hidden weakness. It will remain hidden until a powerful storm blows away the cover. The Apostle Paul wrote, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3.3, emphasis added.
We can do nothing of eternal value in our own ability. It is easy to say this, but having this truth deeply rooted in our being is another matter. There are so many things to say about this chapter, but I think the biggest takeaway for me is the complete uselessness of this book. This book had no reason, has no reason to exist. It's putting forth a completely made-up theology that is completely unnecessary and overwhelmingly harmful, and it is using the Bible in a way that is completely uninspired. It's like Melissa said, it is a grown adult telling other grown adults the same flat-ass, one-dimensional stories we have been hearing from our Christian childhoods from the same flat, white perspective. My emphasis added. Like, we are now in 2022. We are alive and as well as can be expected in this eternal pre-post-pandemic era. We live in the age of origin stories. From Disney to Marvel to whatever, we have seen reboots and retellings and reimaginings of so many stories that we knew one version of from childhood. And yet, too many of us, for way too long, continue to approach the Bible as if flatness is the gospel. As if the versions of the stories that have been cultivated and approved by powerful white men are the only valid readings. And that is such a ripoff. It's a scam. And I think it says so much about how restrictive bad Christianity actually is. Like you serve this amazing, world-building, indescribably creative God, but you approach the book about him and the stories within it from the same perspective every time? You are a full-grown adult living a complicated life in a complicated world, but you still have no understanding, no empathy for Judas? You can still just write him off as never having loved Jesus? You can write a whole ass book claiming you have seen a whole new theology based on this one word from one random verse, but you can't see any nuance in the stories of Judas and Peter. They are still as flat as they were on the flannel graphs from old school children's church. And then what does that say about how John Bevere sees all of us as readers? Like how stupid are we that we couldn't see what he saw in not just the same old stories, but the same old versions? And this is where I'm leaning even farther into my thought that yeah, I don't think we need to hear any more from white men. Because it's not just that I don't think we need to hear anything new from them, I don't even think we can. I don't know that they can see anything new without the help of others. And so we all just need to be listening to the others. So is this me being all Paul about it, like let the white men keep silent in the church? No, not necessarily. I think white men can talk to other white men because the way the system has been set up, that's typically the only people they'll automatically respect and listen to. When it comes to evangelical Christianity, I think we should think about it the same way we think about comedy and accountability. As much as possible, everybody should be punching up. Because just think about it. Think about this book in context, in the world that it exists in, in the country that it exists in. And think about what it would say about God if he really gave this Bible-dumb, unimaginative, privileged white man this imperative word for everyone. In this country, full of people who have historically been absolutely devastated by Bible-dumb, unimaginative, privileged white men. Like, seriously? God gave you a word for all of us, but he ain't got shit to say to you about your kind. Because we've already seen how John dealt with the history of slavery in this country by not dealing with it at all, just breezing right by it. And that's just one umbrella of atrocity. So to believe God would send a message about the importance of not being offended through an offender is to believe that God is white supremacist and cruel. So basically, to believe that God is a white Christian nationalist, which... A lot of people do. So, anyway, 
The stats, this chapter is 13 pages long. The word offended is used 12 times. The word offense is used four times. Offensive and offend do not appear. Y'all heard the story about the boy who was shaken and sifted and got offended with God. So what are some words you would use to describe his experience? And would you label any of them as sin? And think about how John uses that story to compare that boy to Simon Peter and tell me what the fuck is wrong with God? That he would do all that or allow all that, whatever you believe, to deal with his overconfidence. But meanwhile, Peter denied actual Jesus and what? Do bad things happen to Peter? Yeah, eventually, but not in the Peter story that John uses. So what are we doing? Why is this book so bad? This chapter has 26 scripture references, which is way too many. And honestly, everything about this chapter is just too much. So I need to tap out and do something else, anything else. But before I go, in the spirit of Judas, I want to encourage you to take another look at a Bible story this week, any Bible story, and try to see it from the villain's perspective. Growing up in church, I was taught all the stories and how to read them. I wonder what it would be like to approach the Bible without all the spoiler alerts and preconceived ideas about who's bad and who's good. I can't even imagine, but I can reimagine. We all can, and we should. So try it and let me know how it goes. Anyway, thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bad Book Club. I certainly hope you had a better time listening to this episode than I did reading that chapter. This book is a betrayal and it should die and go directly to hell. If you are enjoying this podcast, please remember that sharing is caring. Tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple. And remember to show love to my guests. Hit the show notes for info on where and how to find, follow, and support them. And to check out the links to better things than the bait of Satan. Feel free to hit me via email, my DMs, or the comment section on Instagram if you have any thoughts or questions or want to let me know how your reimagination project went. And that's it for now. I am Janice Legata. This has been an episode of Bad Words, but here are some good ones. From the song Heaven on Their Minds from Jesus Christ Superstar. Some words from Judas. Jesus, you've started to believe the things they say of you. You really do believe this talk of God is true. And all the good you've done will soon get swept away. You've begun to matter more than the things you say. Listen, Jesus, I don't like what I see. All I ask is that you listen to me and remember, I've been your right-hand man all along. You have set them all on fire. They think they found the new Messiah, and they'll hurt you when they find they're wrong.